Dietitians podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today on what is now our 28th episode. And today we have a very special guest on the show, and his name is Steve Hall. Now, Steve is the owner and co-founder of Revive Stronger, which is both an online coaching business and also a highly renowned evidence-based podcast here in the health and fitness community. Now, Jack and I have been huge fans of Steve's work for a number of years now, and we are absolutely thrilled to have him on the show. And we are quite certain that many of the listeners will be well aware of Steve's name, too. So thanks so much for joining us today, Steve. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, it's incredibly humbling to hear you guys um, having followed me for years. I feel like my content has only just become okay and it's kind of like a, I, I'm a little bit embarrassed that you saw some of the old stuff but we have to start somewhere I guess. <laughs> yeah and especially because last year we both competed and especially like on our big drives to placements because we're student dietitians back then and we can safely say that your podcast you and Pascal and all your guests like helped get us through those uh, dieting weeks so yeah. <laughs> yeah Mike for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Mike is hilarious to like yeah. another level. I don't even know where he <laughs> comes out with it. He's full of knowledge, but then is somehow a comedian at the same time. <laughs> yeah, the perfect balance. Cool. So we have some uh, just general questions for you, Steve, about yourself before we get into the more, I guess, things related to health and fitness. So the first question is, tell us a bit about yourself and what got you started in the health and fitness industry? Cool. So, yeah, it's it's funny if I really dial it all the way back, I, I didn't really know much about kind of nutrition and training or anything until the first time I remember finding out about nutrition was I think in like sixth form. And I think I was like 16 years old or something. And my girlfriend at the time was like, I don't know, she was into like trying to lose some weight or whatever it might be and calories and things. And she used to like look at me and be like, how are you eating that? That's got like so many calories in or something like this. And that's where I think my first like awareness came. And then at that time, I also was like starting to go to the gym with friends. Um, you kind of do it as part of like school. And also uh, I saw some of my friends go and I was kind of like, oh, I want to go. And so then kind of got the bug a little bit. And I used to do like uh, dumbbell days and then like cable days. And just that was my split it was like cables and then dumbbells, which probably oh actually it, in some ways wasn't the most awful split. It was better than some things yeah. you could have done. Uh, but I seriously didn't know what I was doing at all. Uh, but that's where the first kind of like interest spawned was just through friends um, and just that awareness there. So then I just started going. I didn't have any idea of plans. I didn't really do any research particularly. You just go and do what your friends are doing. And I got somewhere, but I was never like a, a hyper responder. I think if I had been, I probably would have got into bodybuilding seriously a lot earlier because I would have been like, mm -hmm. oh, well, like, look, I can actually do something here. Yeah. Um, so. I then went to university and I was at the same time doing loads of sports. I've always been really interested in like football, running. I did some rowing at uh, university as well. I was terrible at rowing. I really wanted to be good at rowing. I was terrible at rowing. Um, I just don't have the like proportions for it and everything like that. And then also at that time, whilst I was at university, I was um, the kind of where the initial bodybuilding real interest spawned was during my second year. I was, like I said, I was into running. And I was on um, one of the normal runs I would do around campus. I think it was like 10 kilometers or something. And I used to do this like, I don't know, at least once a week. And I had my old Garmin like uh, heart rate monitor, my Garmin watch on. So I was like racing against myself. You could have like, it was like a shadow on the watch where you could see like what your past time was. Mm -hmm. So I could see that I was uh, like on for a good time and 
this is something about myself is I think probably why I'm okay at bodybuilding or at least like living that lifestyle is I'm very stubborn, um, really want to kind of push hard and always beat myself and I really thrive off that. So I saw this and so I wanted to go and beat myself. So I was running as fast as I could and coming towards my flat and I was literally probably within the last two minutes of being kind of home and dry and kind of resting. Uh, but at some traffic lights, they were flashing amber and I stupidly didn't look and I just launched as, as you do when you're trying to beat your personal best and it's just not a, a safe time to do so. And then having gone, looked right and there was a bigger white van coming and unfortunately got hit by the van mm. and messed up his windscreen. Um, he might have been going too fast, don't really know. Um, but I ended up knocking my head and that head injury landed me in hospital um, mm. for almost a month. And in that time, it was pretty scary. Uh, I just, if anyone's kind of been, it's a kind of combination of being very, very, you guys have just competed. So you kind of know what it's like when you're mm -hmm. down at those depths, kind of you're dieted like that, but you're also like really underslept and just feel awful. Like I had immense brain fog uh, at the time. I don't even know where it went. I can't remember really eating. Um, I can remember for a long time, even after the accident, I had like no taste. I couldn't really smell things. Um, I don't remember like even going to like the bathroom during hospital and things. So my body just was in a really bad place. Um, and I lost a lot of weight during that period of time whilst I was in hospital recovering as well. What ended up happening, they think at least, they still don't really know, is I bruised my pituitary gland, which is kind of like controls lots of um, kind of hormones within the body. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that ended up me coming out with like seriously low testosterone, but more was to the point was my electrolyte balance was really poor. So my sodium levels were kind of at a point where I could seizure if I wasn't careful with like my fluid intake. So I was on like fluid restrictions, taking various um, medicine to try and control my electrolyte balance. And after many months kind of recovered that. And at that same time, this is where I was like, I haven't really got the confidence to want to go running anymore. Um, kind of knocks you a little bit when that sort of thing yeah. happens. Yeah, literally. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, literally. Um, <laughs> And then I've never been the most confident person, but having had that accident, it then really put me off, like putting myself out there in terms of like team sports. And so this is where I was like, the only place of like saving grace was the gym. And I could just go into the gym and push myself there. So that's what I did. Um, I ended up like researching a little bit. I came across probably the wrong resources at first. Um, it was not bodybuilding.com, but it was a different like forum space and uh, like meal plans and people put me on masses of high protein, masses of high calories. In fact, uh -huh. I was probably eating similar calories to what I am now, but I, I kind of was out of hospital at just over 130 pounds. Um, so like I lost, I think over 20 pounds when I was in hospital. Uh -huh. So I lost a lot of weight during that time and I was eating way too much for my body weight and for what I was doing. And so I gained a load of weight very quickly and I came up to 190 pounds within like the year. I just gained it so, so fast. And at the same time I was weight training, so I gained some muscle mass, but not a huge amount because I still didn't really know what I was doing. I was just training very hard with poor technique. I actually did get some injuries during that period of time, one of which I still have today. Um, but it, it is what it is. We all learn from it. Um, so during that time when I hit that like peak body weight, 
I was still really not happy, um, but this was more like physically unhappy with how I looked. I was kind of like, I'm bigger, but just now I'm like bigger and fatter. I didn't really feel like I was in any good sort of shape and I, I wasn't in any good sh sort of shape really. So um, at that time, I also noticed I developed um, like hard lumps underneath my nipples. So I was worried it was something much worse than what it was. It was gynecomastia in the end, mm. which is due to imbalances of estrogen to um, testosterone. And this is where I found out my testosterone levels were at an all time like low um, and I was prescribed TRT. So I had to use some gel, which I rubbed on my chest um, to bring up my testosterone levels. And it made a huge difference um, immediately. Like within the week, I felt like a new person. Um, energy levels were up. I felt just far better in life. And I started actually growing like chest hair, face, facial hair. I started like actually turning into a man, I guess. And this is, like, <laughs> 21 years old. So yeah, it was, it was great. And uh, at that time though, I'd obviously developed this passion of bodybuilding. And um, as I was educating myself, coming across better and better resources, like everyone does, they dig into this stuff. Anyone listening to this has probably gone through that journey where they start off with like the forums which aren't very helpful then they maybe come across someone like Lyle McDonald body recomposition that's something I was reading like every single day digesting his information I came across Matt Ogus and then he led me to Eric Helms 3DMJ and mm -hmm. so I was like oh wow like this natural bodybuilding thing's really cool but I was like now I'm on testosterone replacement therapy like how can I like do this um so I asked after about a month of being on the therapy, I asked if I could come off and see if I could sustain healthy levels because if I wanted to compete in future, that's what I wanted to do and probably stupidly stubborn in that sense, like health is most important. Uh, but I came off and I managed to sustain a level that the doctor was happy for me to kind of go with. Uh, and the doctor wasn't kind of, he didn't think I would be able to. I bring this up because I hope at least, and I partly put it towards bodybuilding for like kind of like saving me uh, in that sense like it made me healthier like I built the muscle I took care of my nutrition I made myself a much healthier person after the accident where I could have gone in a really bad way uh, it gave me direction it gave me focus and it allowed me to improve my body to where it is now so I did then compete I actually remember emailing Eric Helms, um, asking him, like, can I compete? Because I took testosterone replacement therapy. And he was like, what was he going to say? He didn't really know. He doesn't know the, the UK scene that well. Um, he just said to me, like, whatever happens, you will be able to compete. Like, just keep your head there. And um, so I then competed in 2014. So that's when I did my first shows. And it was like a lot of people's first time. It wasn't particularly great. Um, I did like I got in really good shape. I was very happy with it but I didn't do it in the best way. Um, I was really not in a good place during that period of time, but um, that's when I caught the bug. And ever since then, like when I transitioned during that period of time, kind of finished uni, I managed to um, get my degree and I also like went into office jobs, but I had this like bodybuilding was, the bug was there and I wanted to learn this. So um, as I was doing these other jobs, I did personal training qualifications on the side. Um, so I did those on the weekend, studied, and so then I just took the plunge to do one-on-one -on -one PT, which I did for a really short period of time. So a lot of people probably aren't aware that I even did it, but I did it for like not even a year quite, um, because during that time I was also developing and doing my bodybuilding and one-on-one -on -one PT when you're in contest prep is super hard. I have a lot of respect for people who do that mm. because it was killer. And again, like I said, I didn't like have diet breaks, didn't really have many refeeds. Like I was just so, so dead to the world during mm. that period of time. So it made me focus on online coaching 
because I had there was people within the gym from surrounding schools who saw me transforming my physique, saw that I knew kind of what I was doing, um, and they wanted some help. So I was like, oh, I kind of I'd seen 3DMJ doing this kind of online coaching thing. I was like, okay, or maybe I can write you a program, give you some nutritional help, and that's where the online side then started growing, um, and I transitioned um, my one-on-one PT down and built up my online side, started getting people results, sharing it. It was lots of referrals initially. And then ever since then, I moved out into London with the girl, my girlfriend who I met at um, my, during my office work. And I had to then like put everything into content, earning enough money to be able to kind of uh, pay for rent and everything in London. And that forced me to really work hard at that. And ever since then, it's just grown upwards uh, to what it is today, and I'm astounded by it. So, sorry, that was a bit of a long story, but that's kind of the background. (laughs) Yeah, that was was amazing. And I think the great thing is that a lot of our listeners may have tuned in to these later episodes, and they don't know you from the beginning. So, and yeah, what an amazing journey from that injury to where you are today. And yeah, I think a lot of people can find some um, benefit in what you've done. And how did you come across the name Revive Stronger as well? I was just going to say, so that kind of gives you the name, I guess, in some ways it was, I initially came up with just revive because I was like, oh, I'm, I've revived myself better. And I called it like revive with Stephen Hall. I did actually have, what are the names? I went through like the fitness hub was a, a name I had like ages ago. Uh, but yeah, I eventually moved towards revive stronger, um, which was more of a move once Pascal came on board because I didn't really want it to be about me anymore. Mm. I wanted it to be about something bigger which is what I'm hoping we're slowly doing is becoming like a bit of a brand and something Mm. to help more people. But that's where I, that's where my passion came from because it's all about like, you can revive strong. Anyone can come from a poorer place and get themselves to a better place. If they control their nutrition, control their lifestyle and training to a certain degree, um, everyone can do it. Even if you're in a really bad place right now. And yes, Steve, I think that you've just done like a phenomenal job of that because you are literally networking people from all over the world. You know, you've got Mike and Gabrielle and you've got, you know, these people down from Australia, JPS Fitness. And, you know, you are holding conferences and you're interviewing professionals from all over the world and you are truly helping people through your podcast. It's just amazing. Thank you. And I'm honored to just even be able to do it. Uh, when I actually like when I, the other day I was just thinking like, this is really weird how I'm like just talking to someone like Eric or Mike is like a friend when yeah. like Eric is someone who was just like, he was a celebrity to me when I was first just like learning about bodybuilding. And then I had someone like Lyle even come on the podcast and like having discussions back and forth with Lyle, whether or not they're positive all the time <laughs> is another story. But to have that is just strange. It's just crazy to me because as a someone who was like, I don't know, 20, 21 years old, reading his articles, just being like blown away. And then never did I think like a few years later, I'd be interviewing him on a podcast. It's insane. Yeah, that is really incredible. And yeah, I hope that one day we can sort of follow in your footsteps. And yeah, we can especially emphasize emphasize with the uh, name chain, the name of the business, because like, finding something that's relatable to everyone and to you and what you've done as well. Don't want it to be corny and you, yeah. So there's a lot of intricacy with that. Um, but yeah, basically going into some more stuff about you. And I think some people will be very interested in this question. So how do you currently structure your own training and nutrition and how has this changed in recent years? 
Cool. So nutrition, I'll start with because I find it to be really simple. Um, I, I, I noticed the other day, I was like, I never really put out any content about nutrition. Like uh, often on the podcast, it's training related. On my Instagram, it's training related because I find over the like we've just come across nutrition has become quite simple for like physique competitors in that the recommendations for like protein carbohydrates and fats which is the most important kind of macro level things you need to focus on are there um, and they're pretty well known and established so yeah I shoot for around that like one gram of um, protein per pound I tend to have a bit more because I'm on so many carbohydrates and I get mm. I eat like enough bagels to get like 40 grams of protein in like it's just ridiculous yeah we're uh, with you much, <laughs> yeah they it really adds up so I end up having quite a bit more protein than what it looks like I count it all but um, I just increase it because yeah, there's so many poorer quality proteins coming in um, I tend to go for at the moment a lower fat approach so I have 0.3 grams uh, per pound generally which at the moment it's like 60 70 grams I will let that come up for flexibility purposes like during my off season I'm not too stressed about it and then the rest comes from carbohydrates so I'm on like 600 grams of carbohydrates uh, which is a lot um, and yeah. right now it's more than I really want to be consuming um, but that hasn't changed a whole lot since I first got into kind of bodybuilding and learning about this and that's how we much we've known about nutrition for quite a long time I think um, I've just taken more care of kind of nutrient timing I think um, especially at the moment I train twice per day. So I split my workout into two, basically. I don't do two like completely, um, huge workouts or anything. Uh, but with that, I have to take more care of kind of like, uh, carbohydrate timing and fiber timing, fat timing. Cause otherwise I'm just going to end up feeling awful when I get into the gym, my stomach's going to be bloated and I'm going to not be able to put my belt on or something like this. So mm. I have to take care of that, but it hasn't changed a whole lot. Um, when I did first get into things like years ago, it was like, terrible i just followed like the complete bro diets and it was all about like clean bulking but clean meant you just ate like healthy foods essentially um but that didn't it was just the calorie surplus uh, that led to a lot of fat gain in the end which is where it comes from so the only thing i guess the, the biggest thing i've changed this off season at least compared to other ones is accepting and being a bit more assertive about weight gain uh, because in the past and i think probably a lot of people would relate to this once you get to like a certain surplus or a certain number of calories and you're a certain body weight, you just feel very comfortable. Um, and you can quite often just maintain for months and months and still train hard. And you might, you're probably gaining some muscle, but you're certainly not maximizing your chances via doing that. So now I'm a bit more like, I just actually want to see the scale going up and just accept that. And um, I've also let my body weight come up higher than previous years. So I think my last off season, I handicapped myself at 185 pounds, whereas I'm closing in on like 200 now and my physique looks much better for it. And I, I feel better for it. I'm experiencing kind of some things that I haven't experienced before in terms of like just zero food focus, which is really, really refreshing to be honest. And then, yeah, dieting, uh, the biggest thing I think I changed in recent years was just making sure to have diet breaks and uh, not just diet forever um, and not just have like a single refeed during the week more so collect those refeeds over many weeks and put them into a single week so I had a whole week of kind of maintenance calories that seemed to really really help progression um, especially kind of like the the week effect is just so much larger than just having that single day and I think my psychology was better as well in terms of like just you don't look forward to the end of the week every day every yeah every day almost because you have that <laughs> refeed you kind of you're in the diet kind of 
go and then you have a whole break and then you go again um yeah those are probably the biggest things i've changed with my nutrition uh, training wise i follow um i do follow the volume landmarks from mike isratel so your listeners might be aware of those where it's kind of he talked about he came up with mrv initially which is like the most volume you can do and recover from um but i am very big on finding minimum effective volume for people because then you can anything more than that is like a bonus minimum effective volume we know you're growing anything more than that you're growing at a slightly faster pace mm-hmm. so for myself i start at the minimum effective volume um, for all my muscle groups at the moment i don't do any specialization phases uh, that a lot of people do when they get more advanced um, and I take myself through the like maximal adaptive volume um, and eventually I end up hitting MRV, which is normally after about four or five weeks deload and then repeat. Um, and I focus on kind of the five up to 30 repetition range. Uh, that's a recent change. I was more so focusing on like five to 20 at most. Even I rarely even go to 20. It's more like five to 15. Uh, but recently with the new evidence that's kind of coming out that you can go as high as 30 repetitions. Yeah, it's um, pretty it's, amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's something I've been trialing out and it's, yeah, it's fun. It's different. Uh, as long as your not... cardiovascular system doesn't give out, then it's generally all right. <laughs> yeah, not not recommended for squats, but on leg press, <laughs> they can be, be like the the pump you can get on a leg press sometimes is is killer. So I utilize that. I also use reps in reserve. So at the start of that mesocycle, I'm also starting out with like the minimum relative intensity which is probably five reps in reserve, but I, I think that's very hard to judge. So I go for three to four, and then I let that kind of uh, drop down as I progress through reps or load through the weeks, eventually getting very close to failure. Um, I tend not to hit like true failure. I, I tend to just hit a point at which maybe I can't do another good rep um, mm-hmm. because I just don't see the benefit of going past that point. Um, so yeah, that's what my training nutrition looks like at the moment, at least. And you mentioned that you're currently, well, you've been training twice a day now for quite a while. Can you tell us about your experience with that compared to training once per day? So the biggest thing that it's allowed me to do is have high quality volume. So if I was doing, say, for a long time, I was doing like push-pull legs. And in a push session, you'd have your like chest work and then you go into like delts and triceps. So rather than doing that I'd end up doing my chest work and then going and doing like delts and triceps later and so that allows for I normally have about four hours between so rather than the fatigue that I have from the chest work and like my triceps are a little bit fatigued I can go into doing the chest and delt work fresh so the quality is slightly better so what might have been kind of um, three to four reps in reserve when after my chest work is now a better performance because I've just got that time and I've replenished glycogen and I'm in a better position. So it's allowed for a better quality volume. And then eventually I think it's allowed for a slightly higher MRV. So total volume um, has been a bit higher, which is basically the big benefit of higher training frequencies is you can spread your volume over a few more sessions so you can get more in. So by splitting up twice in the day, I get a little bit extra. It's not like night and day, um, but it's really great for me because I work at home, I work for myself, and so it splits up my day quite nicely as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, it gets me out of the, the flat a little bit more. Um, so it's, yeah, I, I don't have at the moment any clients doing it, so I don't often program it for people mm. unless they can truly commit to it and it's something that really complements them. Because um, yeah, it's certainly not for everyone. It's not a must by any means. Mm. Well, yeah, you've definitely shown to us in, since you finished competing last that you've literally blown up. So 
yeah, your approach to training nutrition is great. And it's really encouraging for us to see you implement all those evidence-based guidelines and for us to see that they work like firsthand um, in your case. So yeah, it's pretty awesome. That's and good to hear. So, I'm hoping it's not yeah. just fat. <laughs> <laughs> no, There's Steve, you've some. seriously made amazing progress. Yeah. Like we cannot wait to see you on stage again one day. Like it's damn. I think the whole world's kind of excited. <laughs> <laughs> That actually kind of leads nicely into our next question. Yeah, so what are your future plans for competing? Do you have any lifetime goals you would like to achieve in regards to bodybuilding? Cool. So at the moment, yeah, I'm very excited also to diet down. I'm kind of sick of not dieting at the moment, which is a surprise. Like, I never thought I'd really ever say that. Um, so at the moment, I have planned about two more months left of, like, my off-season. And then I will be doing like a, a diet before the diet. If, if people are kind of familiar with that kind of phrasing from 3DMJ where I'll get probably three months of dieting done, get fairly lean um, where I look like uh, I could start then a proper contest prep and get lean for 2020, which is what I'm kind of planning to do. So um, two months of off season, uh, do a maintenance during that time as well, call it the primer phase and then do the diet before the diet about three months, get kind of very lean, do another primer um, maintenance period and allow my kind of metabolism and everything to heal back up and then, or heal, upregulate, <laughs> use the right terms. I don't want to say heal. Um, and then, yeah, dig for shows during 2020 is kind of the idea. I'm making a judgment call at the end of that first diet to whether or not I think I'm, I've either made enough progress to where I'm satisfied that I'll do better than last time um, or, yeah, I'm not sure. But, and, and in terms of long-term goals, I'd love to say that like I'd love to go pro but being realistic with my kind of and I don't want to be I, I probably look down on myself too much in this regard but I don't think I have the best like shape for bodybuilding and so I think I'll be lucky if I end up going pro and it will be a case of someone better didn't turn up on the day which is always what it is um, so I just want to be encouraging for other people that they can take their physique very very far from maybe not the best starting point um, that would be the biggest thing for me is helping other people um, rather than necessarily any goals, particularly for myself. My goal for myself is just to to keep putting my best foot forward and uh, bring about my best package possible. Well, in part, I think that's something you've kind of already achieved, Steve. Good. <laughs> that's nice to hear. <laughs> yeah, uh, we're both really eager to watch your journey. And yeah, I think in a way, if you come first in a bodybuilding show, it does literally mean that no one else has turned up that's better than you so there's always going to be someone that's better <laughs> yeah there's the, the uk scene in particular at the moment i don't know how much you keep an eye you guys would keep an eye on it but it's just the quality just keeps it's probably the same with you guys mm. the quality just keeps getting better and better and better probably yeah. down to us putting out good information and then people are getting better it's like no <laughs> should not do this <laughs> yeah we we say the same about the australian scene as well like especially this past season. Usually season B in the second half of the year is a bit more competitive, but the season A that's just happened, like some pretty insane physiques and it is literally just getting better every year. So um, in all federations. So yeah, it's yeah. cool. So this is uh, the next question for you. It's about uh, you as a coach. What are some of the biggest lessons you've learned during your time as a coach? Cool. So I think um, probably the biggest lesson for me as like an online coach, at least, is the importance of face-to-face -face contact still, or at least like uh, audio um, contact. Because uh, I initially started, I would not have like consultations. So I just like start people up and then I just do email with them. 
uh, which just really didn't work very well. Uh, there's so many words kind of missed between the lines and um, you don't get the personality across. You also don't get kind of the, the emotion across. Um, it's so super important for me to get that connection. So the biggest lesson I had as an online coach is like how important having the initial consultation with the client is um, just to get a proper feel for them and then to get a proper feel for you and um, have a, a real deep conversation and get those visual cues and then the uh, our weekly check-ins are visual as well so they're videos so um, someone can talk to the camera and I find people are just way more able to express their real feelings and emotions and they they also can't hide them and they also don't want to um, like a good coach is very empathetic and I think that's something I've kind of fortunately got a lot of is empathy for people and so they feel very open and able to speak um, whereas email can be really like I don't know just very short and I think that hurts a lot of people because personal training at the end of the day online coaching is still there's still the personal element there I think there should be for the best results because it's super important so yeah that's probably the biggest lesson I've had as a coach is how important keeping that personal element, keeping the, the kind of visual and the audio between the individual there and um, because that's the true way to individualize when you are coaching someone. Mm. And that, yeah, that resonates with us as well because say if you're uh, coaching someone with a contest prep and you say, yeah, we're going to be adding in some extra cardio this week and they just text back saying, absolutely, exclamation mark, <laughs> and then they're dying inside and you can't, yeah. really, <laughs> you can't really tell. So, yeah, even from that standpoint, it's so important to to be able to hear someone's voice and facial expressions and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I think it really, really helps to encourage them to, you know, like because Jack and I, we meet up with our clients, you know, generally on a weekly to fortnightly basis and we do posing practice. We take their skin folds and certainly to actually get to the like speak to them in person makes a world of difference. Yeah, I can agree with that. Whenever we've had like meetups or we do the seminars and clients come it's that extra element. You already feel like you know one another because yes. you've obviously spoken a lot, but it's really nice to actually have that personal connection. I agree. Yeah, it really can help to add energy to it. Mm. And so our next question for you is, how have you seen the industry change during your time as a coach? Interesting question. Um, I think the the big, I, I mean, it might be that I've got like blinkers on because I'm in a little bit of like the evidence-based bubble a little bit, but it seems to be more and more evidence is coming out better information is there more people are getting hold of it um however i think there's maybe a lot of people still um confused by it so it's almost like there there's too much information for them paralysis paralysis by analysis is mm. kind of the phrase that comes to mind and that's actually a lot of people i end up coaching are people who are very invested love it but they end up watching like every single podcast that is out there that has someone who seems knowledgeable and they end up just getting confused by it. So I think it's come to a point where there's way more information that's brilliant, but now it's kind of for the, the consumers, digesting it has become really, really difficult. So that's something I found has really come in. Um, and then just the prevalence of like social media, Instagram, when I first was on there, like it, it really wasn't a big thing for us or for me whereas mm -hmm. now it's like a, it's free marketing and it's it's mm -hmm. huge it's important and yeah. now there's there's people on there with hundreds of thousands of followers who are doing online coaching and things and that's exploded again when i i was probably lucky in a sense coming to do online coaching there wasn't that many people doing it at the time at least as far as i was aware whereas now it's just like every there's so many um and every single personal trainer is now doing it almost whereas in the past it was kind of like not really so that's probably the biggest change i've seen uh, and I think overall it's positive. 
Um, but there are obviously quite a bit of negatives associated with that as well. Yeah, and I feel with especially Instagram, you can easily get stuck into like a little bubble. So whether that because I remember when I first went on Instagram, like probably wasn't the most evidence based people I was following. And then all my discover feed was full of non evidence based. But now it's like done a complete 360, a 180. Sorry. So yeah, it's pretty amazing. If you follow the right people, Instagram actually can be a pretty amazing educational platform. If you follow correct people like yourself and Eric Helms and, you know, Gabrielle and everyone like this. But yeah, again, you can be misled for sure. <laughs> yeah, it's almost got to the point where science has become a marketing tool and it doesn't matter if you're using it right or wrongly mm. and if you are a lay person you don't understand if someone's got like a they said this is science-based then they just believe it and they trust it now because it's like oh yeah it's got science in there mm. so it, it's yeah it's tricky because people are now using it the wrong way yeah apple cider vinegar comes to mind oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> so we'll start off with the listener question so the First question is by Corinne, and this is, uh, I think, a good question to start off with. Would love if Steve could explain how the maintenance primer phase works. Cool. Yeah, that's awesome. So we just obviously released this as a book, and um, it's actually we're super blown away by how many people have just picked it up and really enjoyed it. It's, it's been incredible because as far as I'm concerned, it's probably the least sexy thing there probably <laughs> is out there uh, in many ways. Uh, so we try and kind of make it a bit sexy by calling it the primer phase. Uh, so in short, uh, this the, the origins of this really came from um, my kind of learning from Mike Isretel. Um, I'd always come across like diet breaks uh, and like week long, two week long periods of time, but I'd never really heard of like a true period of just pure maintenance, um, not just maintenance from a um, nutritional standpoint, but also from a training standpoint where you are just looking to just hold on to what you've got. And I didn't really understand the rationale behind it fully. And I didn't really accept it because you always want to be pro progressing as whether mm -hmm. or not that's fat loss or muscle gain but it really acts as something that can propel you forward, which is why I ended up terming it the primer phase. Because um, as we move away from homeostasis, which is like a place our body likes to be, uh, whether or not that's fat loss or muscle gain, the body kind of resists harder and harder. We get adaptive resistance building up. Um, we know this with like any biological thing. Um, when you kind of like you scratch yourself and then it you get a scab, you get scarring, the skin there is a bit tougher and the, the body resists adaptation or even better, um, going outside and getting a tan, um, kind of you get the build up of the tan and so you can kind of protect yourself against the sunlight even more. Um, so we know this thing happens and it happens with dieting. Uh, we experience that firsthand. Everyone listening will be able to kind of feel this in terms of like just diet fatigue factors building up. So you get more hungry, you get less energetic, your libido comes down, you're thinking about food all the time. Uh, it makes dieting harder and harder and your actual energy energy expenditure drops as well so um, you get to a point where the body's just resist you so hard that it's is it really worth is the efficiency of keeping dieting there maybe you're going to binge and fall down and kind of go back and this often happens with yo-yo dieting still pro prolific out there so then this is where uh, a maintenance primer phase would come in you take calories up to maintenance and you hold that new lower uh, body fat settling point um, settling points are kind of they're not a definite they're more of a theory whereby kind of if you're normally very very lean then holding a lean physique is fine this is kind of your homeostasis but if you've been quite high in terms of body fat and you've settled there and this is very comfortable for you then when you diet down and you're leaner now it can be really hard so by just taking a period of time to maintain 
uh, it could be really great to allow that setting point to kind of somewhat settle at a lower level. Uh, same with uh, building muscle, sorry. So after kind of long periods of time where you're building muscle, not only are you probably in a surplus, you're gaining some fat, which is its own sort of anabolic resistance in a sense, because P ratios, so the ratio of fat to muscle gain kind of shifts out of favor as you get a little bit fatter. Um, and also as you train with higher volumes, you just get more fatigue built up. So everyone would have experienced this over like months and months of higher volume training. You just get more niggles. You don't get as good like pumps and feel from training. Um, there's elements of uh, buildup of AMPK, which is like a more so catabolic marker. mTOR kind of drops. I'm not going to try and say that I know everything about <laughs> those things. And they're very kind of uh, theoretical more so or mechanistic ideas. Mm -hmm. But it makes sense that these sort of things happen. And definitely we do get that resistance towards kind of building muscle building up and so by taking a period of time again to um, maintain to prime we resensitize ourselves to training volumes we need less so our minimum effective volume which i talked about before that starts rising as we start training with higher and higher volumes uh, because it, it needs to as the body resists kind of adapt adapting and growing so by taking a period of lower volume going through the primer phase, we allow this to come back down. We also allow a lot of the things that build up in terms of fatigue and niggles to really kind of uh, recover. Deloads and everything are great. They kind of help in many ways, just like a diet break would help with um, dieting and the kind of adaptive resistance that builds up with that. But after a while, maybe three to like six months, there becomes a time where it's just like, okay, I need a longer period just to, to hold off. Um, I very much, as an analogy, put this like during the working week we have obviously evenings off we're not working all through the day because we need a bit of rest then we get our weekends which are great they're kind of like our deload and days off but after a while we need a holiday we need a longer break and this is kind of like the primer phase to the macro cycle of kind of building or losing fat uh, or building muscle and losing fat sorry so um, that's kind of yeah where it came from and what it's all about and it's just been really helpful for like long-term periodization and consistent gains and consistent fat loss for people and our clients. Mm. Yeah, Jack and I are definitely going to have to get our hands on that book and we will certainly put the link to it down in the description box below so that people have the link too. It should be great to read and I'm, I'm aware that you've been working on that for quite some time now. So it's very exciting that it's finally released. Yeah, also, yeah, we just thought... We've been talking about it a lot and a lot of people have questions a lot of the time. So just like, all right, let's actually make a resource. Let's package it up. Uh, and having written it, it was really nice actually putting all the thoughts into one place. And it's like, ah, yeah, like it resold me on how important these phases really are. It's like, I need to do one. I'm looking forward to actually doing my next one. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah, well, you'll definitely be the man to know how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so moving on to our next question, which is by John Schultz. Maximum amount of lower back loading movements you'd include in one mesocycle? So this is a great question. Um, and I think it's obviously like a lot of things is individual. People who require less training volume or can do less training volume probably have a lot more ability to put in more of these bigger compound lifts that are going to load the lower back. So like bent over rows, deadlifts, um, squats these axial loading style of lifts, they really fatigue us heavily. Um, they create a lot of fatigue, but you also get a load of muscle growth from them because like a deadlift almost hits every single muscle, the squat, a great, great compound lift, bent over rows again. But for someone who's maybe um, got plenty of time and they've got a lot of volume to hit, they want to pick more favorable, potentially 
uh, movements that create a lot of stimulus with less fatigue because a deadlift whilst it's very stimulating it's also very fatiguing especially if you're quite strong so it might not be the best lift for someone who is quite advanced um, has lots of time to put into the gym and therefore can afford to maybe do more sets on something that's less fatiguing but creating more stimulus for them whereas if someone's a bit newer they maybe they're only training three days per week they probably want a lot of these bigger lifts but probably load the lower back but that's not really a limiting factor for them because their volume requirements and their ability to do that volume is so much lower so um, for myself personally and, and then it's just individual based so some people just have like an, a low back of steel that can just mm. deal with it whereas other people are just it's very very weak so it, it's difficult to say exactly um, yeah I don't know if I can I can't put a number on it uh, yeah it's difficult give to that general yeah yeah, but I think that's a really good explanation, actually, of saying if you have more volume to play around with, you can probably uh, include other movements like a bent over row or a T-bar row and not having to rely on something like a deadlift. And I know you personally uh, stopped deadlifting and you're doing this uh, stiff legs now, aren't you? Yeah, I trialed um, putting deadlifts back in because everyone loves deadlifts and it's <laughs> yeah. really cool to feel really strong and um, I'm, I'm fairly strong at deadlifts, uh, but they just wipe me like mm. I do my set like two sets three sets of deadlifts and they almost wipe me for my entire session whereas with the stiff legs um, it's less load on the bar range of motion for the hamstrings and glutes is a little bit larger um, and so I get more stimulus for less fatigue out of that movement and so for me it's an absolute winner and I think a lot of the time for someone who's like intermediate advanced deadlifting off the floor isn't always kind of the best choice mm. at least yeah yeah I agree but yeah I won't go into the listeners all know our personal stories with deadlifting and stuff. Oh, so, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so no injuries, ooh. I hope. <laughs> yeah, not well, anymore. Not, fortunately. not, not for me. But Jack got a bit hurt last year. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. So like, it's a good question because I have to be careful with my lower back loading, and I don't deadlift anymore. So things like that. Yeah. So yeah, it's a good question to ask. So moving on to the next question, which is by Nay Francis. What's the maximum number of sets you do for a muscle group per workout session? Cool. So um, this has changed recently because there's been, well, actually Mike came over and presented um, on maximal volume and minimal volume for a muscle group per session. Uh, so this looks like it's three to 10 is kind of like where things are indicating at the moment. And this isn't like a definite, this is more of a, a rationale, a theory, a hypothesis, um, whereby if you do less than three, you're maybe not stimulating enough to really create a stress response to cause an, an a, a, like recovery response and adaptation. But if you're doing more than 10, potentially the sets past that are now creating excess damage and fatigue and not worth the stimulus that they're providing. So they become almost like junk volume in, in, in a sense. Yeah. So that tends to be my kind of limit at the moment. It's like 10 sets for a muscle group for a session. Uh, but I have gone over that. Um, and I think it also depends not just on the person, but maybe on the movements you're choosing as well. So if you're doing like, I don't know, squats and a leg press, maybe 10 sets is pr a pretty good limit because that's five sets of each of those potentially and that's quite a lot whereas if it's maybe leg extensions and maybe I don't know uh, again a leg press then maybe it would be more than that because leg extensions aren't as stimulating and fatiguing as a squat is so maybe it would go a little bit higher for that person uh, but I think as a rule of thumb 10 is a good kind of upper limit for a lot of people mm. yeah I think that's a great answer yeah thank you all right and so this next question is from Nafe 
Francois. I hope I pronounced that correctly. And it says, how do you structure a macro cycle? Cool. So I guess this is for hypertrophy because that's all I really do. Um, yeah. <laughs> powerlifting is long and gone. And so, yeah, for macro cycle for hypertrophy, I would start off with what I would call like standard hypertrophy. This has changed recently, actually. I used to very much do like a standard hypertrophy phase. Um, and I'll explain what that is. And then I'll go into like a standard hypertrophy phase with slightly higher repetition ranges. And then I'll use that and go into a kind of a metabolite phase, which has the last phase, but layers on top metabolite work and then a primer or a mini cut and then move forward. But more recently, I've been trialing having more focus on like six to 30 repetition ranges. So whereas before I wouldn't include like any of the higher repetition ranges in that first phase, in that first mesocycle, now I might have a focus on kind of the five to 10 repetition range with a little bit of 10 to 20 and a little bit of 20 to 30. And then the next mesocycle focus on the 10 to 20, have a little bit of um, five to 10 and a little bit of 20 to 30. And then in the final uh, mesocycle or the third mesocycle have mostly 20 to 30, a little bit of 10 to 20, a little bit of five to 10, where you have all of them going through, but you have a focus on one during the period of time. I don't know if either or is better, and we don't even know if periodization is necessarily even needed for bodybuilding, but it, it kind of makes theoretical rationale uh, or sense in that moving from kind of the lower hypertrophy range towards the higher, higher hypertrophy rep range allows for a little bit more volume each mesocycle because the higher repetitions tend to allow for more hard sets to be done. And I kind of call hard sets like anywhere within that rep range where you're going three to four reps in reserve or lower than that. Um, that tends to be how I move through it. So it might be three back to back, or you might do three or four, maybe up to six, depending. Um, and you use the metabolite work a little bit sparingly. So that's anything that basically gets a pump. Might be like myo reps, drop sets, um, giant sets, supersets, um, or agonist supersets rather, um, not kind of antagonist. Um, and then I yeah either drop in a primer phase to kind of resensitize before going through again, or put in a mini cut if it's appropriate for the person. Um, and then go through another round of massing. But they tend to be, I like at least two mesocycles of massing together. Um, if it, that, that's like the lower limit up to like probably six for someone who's very new. Awesome. And I do actually have a, there is another question related to this as well. And it's how would you basically structure the number of exercises in a other week of training or a session? So say if you have six sets of pushing movements to do, would you uh, do two sets across three exercises or would you do uh, two exercises with three sets each? If you know what I mean? Yeah, cool. So I think for the most, my kind of rule of thumb is two to four movements per muscle group. Um, I think biceps and like smaller muscle groups could probably go above that if, if you really wanted to. Um, but uh, I don't think you need more than two to four for most, um, mm -hmm. but at least two, because if you've just got one movement, it's really hard to get the volume in because yeah. using the same movement path, I mean, just from a psychological aspect, at least, but using the same movement pattern, even if it's in different rep ranges, if your muscles recovered, but you have to hit it in the same exact way at the same angle. I don't think that's the best for hypertrophy, mm. but if you've got two, then that can be really nice. So like hamstrings, often I only have two because you can get a nice hip hinge in there and a leg curl. So you're kind of hitting the, the hamstring fully um, by um, hip extension and also knee flexion, which is great. Uh, but the hamstrings also don't need a huge amount of volume. So two exercises sometimes can be enough to get that all in. Um, whereas for some muscle groups, they're more multi the kind of more complex rather um so something like the back 
the lats splay like all over the place. You also have the rhomboids, the traps. It's quite a big muscle group in that regard. So maybe four exercises is going to be more ideal for that sort of mm -hmm. muscle group, especially a lot of people can handle more volume with the back. So if you can kind of fit that within more exercises, that sometimes can be more preferable. I think if you're going over like maybe six sets for a single exercise within a single session, you're probably getting a little bit much. Whereas mm -hmm. if you can split that between two and you do three and three, I think that's great. But if you have too many exercises and you take that to an extreme, then you end up not really getting very good at anything. Um, and you also end up just like moving arbitrarily between exercises throughout the session and you leave nothing new to come in future. So it's quite nice sometimes once a movement kind of gets stale, you kind of milked out, it's really not progressing well. Or if it's a bit uncomfortable, you can put in some novelty, change that exercise and have a new one. And if you're anything like me and at a commercial gym, you don't have that much choice. Um, there's not a huge, huge amount of variance. Some people have bodybuilding gyms and they have like six different leg presses. So they're, they're fine. Um, but for a lot of people, they don't have enough to be able to kind of go through so many exercises in a single kind of week. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful answer, especially, you know, really finding that happy medium with the certain number of exercises you do for, I'm just thinking of the shoulders as an example, you know, like picking maybe and three to four shoulder exercises that you would do instead of doing like 10 different exercises for your delts, which is just insane. <laughs> and yeah, that yeah resonates with me too. And um, going off the, we've actually just transitioned into a more bodybuilding style gym and it really is just night and day with the equipment selection. Oh, wow. so. <laughs> I'm jealous. <laughs> <laughs> so the next question comes from Andrew Hughes and he asks, ideas for accountability when working alone slash without a coach? Cool. Uh, that's a really interesting question. So I think my initial thought is kind of surrounding friends and family, um, PTs at the gym, just kind of tell them what you're doing, tell your friends and family what you're doing so that if there's like food around at home and they see you like nibbling, at, I don't know, a bowl of peanut M&Ms and they're like, aren't you on a diet? They can actually <laughs> help you with that. Um, I think yeah. it's good to stay account. I even tell that to my clients who I'm coaching, like just like tell your girlfriend what you're doing because if she doesn't know, she's going to try and, I don't know, she thinks she's being nice feeding you like fast yeah. food or whatever it might be yeah. whereas if she knows then she can hopefully help you so that's something I definitely would take advantage of and then I think there's a lot of apps that are really great now so I think if I want to my Fitbit can buzz me um, if I've not done like the steps I need to be doing in a certain period of time so it can keep you accountable in that regard I think my fitness pal it gives you like a streak I think probably you can get that to nudge you as well um, for what you're doing so I think there's and I think even RP have like a diet app now. I bet that has, I think it actually has some um, like annoying, not annoying, it has some great reminders for like you helpful. should be eating now. Yeah, helpful <laughs> reminders. Um, so yeah, it, that can, I think in this day and age, they those kind of tools of like the different apps and like it's so great at the moment, but um, you can always obviously turn them off and you can always lie to yourself. So um, that is a why us have guys have jobs because accountability mm -hmm. is is huge. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it'll always come down to yourself and your own integrity. That's always going to be the number one thing, your own self-discipline. And then we can start to rely on like apps and friends and families and that sort of stuff. So, yeah. I always get people when they're thinking to do something and they're not sure about it. I always say, ask yourself the question, take a moment, ask yourself the question, is this going to take me further towards or further mm -hmm. away from my goals? And then normally that's just enough time to be like, don't be an idiot. <laughs> yeah, yes, like, hold exactly. it back. <laughs> or I always say like, how am I going to feel afterwards? Like, yeah, because um, like the worst feeling is when you do something and then 
you're oh crap i wish i didn't do that like that's the worst feeling so so this next question is from lawrence greaves he's one of your big fans over here down in australia so lawrence has asked what are your top tips for a productive massing phase love your work steve oh okay so thank you lawrence um top tips i would say being really consistent with every well consistency full stop really is probably a big big top tip and that means just like you would in a dieting phase a lot of people like take it very seriously they don't miss meals they're on top of their training they get their cardio in i'd use a lot of that mentality and put it towards kind of your massing phase make sure you're going and getting your training in make sure um, you're eating your food because i think food for a lot of people like i said for me it was something i got very complacent on because when you're fed and your maintenance or even a slight surplus it's super comfortable um but it at times needs an element of discomfort to create that change especially if you're like pushing past a body weight that you've never been up to before for me like getting above 190 pounds has meant having to push a lot of food um, and that might be the case for other people so i think especially as you get more trained that can come really important and i also say just in this would go for anyone really not just massing but like technique um, in the gym form just super important um, be really really careful with that and don't let yourself kind of ever kind of do cheat reps um, don't break down keep that really tight and it doesn't mean like don't train hard always train hard but definitely keep technique safe because if you ever overdo it or if you quite slightly tweak something because you're just being kind of like letting the ego go getting injured is the worst thing for muscle growth like you're just yeah, going to set yourself back sure. so making sure you take care of that and I guess in in the same line of that, the final one I'd probably say is like recovery is huge. Um, and the biggest thing I've taken a focus on in like the last year is just sleep. Um, if you need like a book to read, Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker will just like blow your mind and you'll be like, all right, I need to nail my sleep. So huh. um, and it's quite simple. Some of the things that you can do to really help with sleep that I think a lot of people don't currently do. So, yeah, sleep consistency and keeping that technique really good. Mm. Yeah. The yeah, sleep especially resonates with me. If I don't get at least eight hours, then I'm in trouble. So yeah. 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 Especially when clients are always asking, you know, very complicated questions and you're like, how much sleep are you getting per night? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like let's yeah, address that first. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Cool. So we're wrapping up with our final two questions and finishing with an like second last one's an important one from Tanya Miller. What's more anabolic, Crocs or five finger vibrant? <laughs> I know Tanya, so this is hilarious. This is I recently I thought this might happen. There's people like wearing vibrams now, and obviously Jared and Mike are wearing the Crocs. So it's kind of like uh, I actually I have Crocs and I have vibrams, um, but I don't it's like rest and reserve uh, reps and reserve versus training to failure. I guess <laughs> yeah, it, it is. I think for every day crocs have got to take it just because like you can wear you can actually wear though i don't know i actually have no idea where i'm going i don't know i i really am struggling um i think i'd go with the vibrams maybe yeah. vibrams are also really comfortable but crocs can be as well so i'm like i don't even know i, I say vibrams because they're the ones i've got in the flat whereas my crocs are back with my parents <laughs> so and yeah especially yeah uh, crocs and 
socks don't don't really match either so <laughs> so the last question is uh, one that we finish on each week for the guest so what's one interesting thing that you learned this week that you didn't already know cool so i was yeah i think because you said this off air so i was like oh, what can i think of and it's something i've i was trying to think of something that wasn't just completely useless so i've been re listening to a book on audible um called you are not so smart um, and this is all about like logical fallacies that people have. Uh, and it went into one, which I actually can't remember what the fallacy was, but it started talking about it. And it was like, people will say that men who are dating, dating younger women are like, um, just like, or, or they're like sugar daddies and they're after their money or whatever it might be. And then guys who have like, I don't know what they called them. They're like fake real dolls or something. And they like have those at home and they're like, they're disgusting and weird. And then it went into like why this is maybe not a fair a judgment to have. And it talks about these beetles that are, I think they're actually in Australia and they're beetles that end up um, mating with bottles. Um, these like dubby, like brown dubby bottles or something, because apparently they look like their ideal mate, but even better. Like they're even more brown, they're even more shiny. And so you find these beetles mating with these bottles even if they're like being attacked by like ants and things and they're going to die because they're so like overwhelmed by it. And they're like, <laughs> now you can understand why men might find these like dolls attractive and why kind of older men might go for these younger women because it's like a super stimulant. So yeah, that's the one I thing think we've I got the <laughs> um, podcast episode name as well. Now uh, Beatles <laughs> mating with bottles. <laughs> Do you guys have these like little brown like beer bottles or something? Uh, I think that's what yes, it is. Yes, we do. And if it's if it's a beetle, then we probably have it in Australia as well. So <laughs> I don't know what's going on in this country. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Steve, we just want to say a huge thank you for coming on today. Like we've really enjoyed this and I'm sure the listeners have really enjoyed listening to this as well. And before we head off, please let everyone know where can they find you and where can they find your work? Thank you so much for having me on. I've really enjoyed it as well. Thanks for the great questions. Um, so yeah, if they want to find everything about us, I'd probably just revivestronger.com um, is where you'll be able to find the podcast. Uh, Miguel does some great articles over is there on there as well. Um, and they can find the online coaching there as well if they want to. And then I'm revivestronger on Instagram, which is where I'm most active. So if people want to kind of connect with me over there, they absolutely can. Uh, thank you very much. And thank you guys. All right. Wonderful. So guys, if you enjoyed this episode, please take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag Steve, tag myself, tag Jack, tag the bodybuilding dietitians, and we will catch you next week. See ya.